0: It's been a lot of fun, that's for sure. It's gonna be even more fun in two seconds as Russ Smith stands to the free-throw line. Won't need to make these free throws. Doesn't have to worry about them, there is no pressure. All he can do is add to what the lead is right now, and it's not gonna happen. And the Louisville Cardinals are the 75th NCAA College Basketball Champions. And Rick Bonino. But the 500s in confetti has won his second national title, first at Kentucky, and now at Louisville, with this man ever to do it.
1: So, I got a pretty silly email this week. Okay. It's actually from someone, first of all, who has a hilarious email name. Uh, the email came from Beware's Bird at uh, gmail.com. Okay. I guess a tribute to the late Frankie. Yes. Who died in a fire, sadly. Really? Uh, he said, Sportscasters just finished listening for the first time stumbled into the podcast looking back at some of the masked man's old tweets at the end the one thing that stuck out was i had absolutely no idea who either of you were (laughs) might be a good idea to introduce yourselves at some point during the podcast keep up the good work and he signed it, Coco Beware's Bird. We are our worst promoters. So I thought that, that was very interesting as we head into what is today the 150th episode of the Sportscasters. Uh, that we would get an email in between episode of number 149 and 150. And also get a note from the person that you could argue is our biggest fan uh who says yesterday that the day before yesterday was the first day he even knew you were on Twitter
2: Really Yeah we used to give out my Twitter handle I don't use it much
1: So and we, we definitely don't
2: use it for the show
1: We 150 episodes into this have not figured out the key to promoting ourselves Yeah there's very, not
2: very clearly I don't I don't use Twitter that often so I mean my Twitter handle is don likes sports which he kind of ripped on me before you right. said it should have been Don likes two sports or something like that, or Don likes hockey and football or something, But uh, which well, is true.
1: One thing you do use a lot is your name, which is Don Russ, who is one of the hosts. Yes. And I'm Steve Bennett. I'm one of the other hosts, and we just give that information out for our friend uh, Coco Beware Bird, <laughs> uh, just so he knows. I'm Steve. It's nice to meet you, uh, Mr. Bird. And uh, <laughs> this is Don. He's also very excited to meet you. I
2: am. Who is the masked man?
1: He was talking about. That's uh, our buddy David Shoemaker, who. Uh, oh, okay. The book. Wrote the book, the squared gotcha. circle. Gotcha. So you must have been going through some of his tweets. You know, it's it's so funny because when we were when we were when we started this podcast, uh, I was had no shame in asking the guests for retweets. Right. I would email them and thank them and say, "Hey." We're going to tweet this all week, and if you can retweet it, that would be huge. And there was a couple people who didn't like that, mm-hmm. and even one person who I don't think has been back on the podcast since because of it, and one who will never – this that same person will never be on due to uh, – we had a email fight, basically, over his absolutely ridiculous uh, one-sided love affair for Quinnipac. Uh <laughs> So um, – But even before that, I I felt like we had maybe turned him off by asking for the retweets. So we haven't – I very, very rarely do it now. And two podcasts ago, we got a ton. And the the podcast got a lot of buzz and we got a lot of downloads. And uh, I even got a note from Stitcher, I think, saying that maybe it was uh, our most downloaded podcast from them. And it's such a disappointment last week when we had Jim Florentine and Jeff Passan uh, two guys with a ton of followers and we didn't get one retweet from either of those guys. And it's not against those guys cause they don't have to do it. But I wish it was just universally known how huge it is for a small guy like us to Together get a retweet? those retweets. Yeah. I wonder, you uh, know?
2: I've heard, I follow a comedian or two, but I've heard a lot of comedians. I don't follow Jim Florentine. I've heard they're notorious for only using their Facebook to promote like show dates. So maybe he doesn't even use it. I don't know.
1: Right. And, you know, it's funny too because I've noticed that comedians and wrestlers, they all have podcasts now. Uh-huh. And they're all about getting this guy, each guy. It's like a rotation. Like Tom Green is on the Andrew Dice Clay podcast and then Dice Clay's on the Green podcast. And then Green does Jay Moore and then Moore does Greens and then Moore does – Like it just seems like – and now with the wrestling, there's a wrestling – someone's paying these guys. And I think Chris Jericho and Steve Austin and Jim Ross, they all have podcasts. And I always look to see if there's someone interesting that I'd want to listen to. And I notice the same thing. It's the same guys rotating through. Sports podcasts don't seem to be quite as bad with that. Not to say that Luke Wynn isn't going to appear on other podcasts this week. Sure, right. Although not many, I can tell you that much because I I know that he takes – Luke Wynn doing this show today is one of the more special things we we have. That he does it consistently year in and year out Mm -hmm. this week is huge uh, for us. But there's so many different sports personalities, I guess, that there isn't the need for just the same 20 guys to rotate in and out. I'm way off topic here, but (laughs) – Um, I want to thank Jim Forentine and Jeff Passon for being on the podcast very much. Uh, Today we have Luke Wynn who's making his – every year we've done the podcast with the exception of last year when I was still out of commission. Luke Wynn has come on the podcast after Selection Sunday and before he heads out to whatever site. He's going to work on his fantastic NCAA blog that runs on SI.com, which unfortunately this year he's going to be doing less of because he has a bigger role in the magazine. See, Don, we start with these guys – sometimes real earlier in their careers at SI, and we watch them. Right. Like, pretty soon Luke Wynn's going to be an editor and, like, never come on, like, Wartime. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. it's just going to happen. Uh, but Luke Wynn is going to join us today to talk about the tournament. And Ed Sherman, who's another good friend of ours, who started with us at a period in his life where he was one of the guys who was no longer going to be a newspaper guy. Those days were going to be over for him, and he's starting his own thing. Now he still has his own thing, which has grown, and also he's back to being a newspaper guy. He writes for the Chicago Tribune, one of the biggest newspapers in the country, and he's going to end his run as uh, one of the authors of our book club, uh, Book of the Month, for his Babe Ruth book. And also we're going to talk to him a little bit about uh, the media NCAA tournament, what to expect from CBS this week. Uh, Also... We are going to uh, update the book club, say what's going to go on now that uh, uh, Sherman's out. And then we're going to close with one last thing. So the 150th episode of the Sportscaster starts now with three things.
0: Let's play a game. All right.
1: Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This
0: is the funnest
1: night ever. Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. Alright, so, like we said, Sunday, uh, March Madness began with Selection Sunday. And I read a tweet that said, this may not be... The worst bracket of all time. I think I am going to reserve that for the 2003 bracket, but it is probably next in line. So a lot of people I, I've are heard
2: that before too. It not
1: is- happy with what the committee has done. What do they mean by that? Well, one thing that the biggest thing, and we'll talk with Luke about this more later, is nobody's happy that the 34-0 Shockers of Wichita State ended up in the most difficult bracket. Yeah, I have heard that. Including a bracket with Louisville, who they feel was way under at number four, who Las Vegas has already said would be the favorite in any game against any team they play in their bracket. Okay. So if you're out below that on the bottom half of that bracket, let's say you're Duke, who got the number three seed, you're in a much better spot than the number one seed in your own bracket so right yeah i i did hear that. so there's that complaint but it's not like a complaint
2: about like teams being snubbed right i mean it's 60
1: no i think it seems like they feel like the 68 teams that got in are the right 68 teams i don't hear any huge outcries for the green bays of the world or some of the smaller uh colleges that didn't didn't get in there at the last second but uh, so, I ask you this all the time, and it's usually uh, maybe or no or uh, we'll see, but is the NCAA tournament uh, – two parts. Is the NCAA tournament going to draw you to your TV, and are you going to gamble on it in some way?
2: Uh, not uh, – if ga- if the definition of gambling is something along the lines of, like, I give something up other than time, then no. Uh, I have no knowledge of it. I might fill out that billion dollar bracket. But now, why wouldn't you do it. If that? I do it, it would just be all favorites. Probably. I, I guess it, the only reason not to do it is because you value the five minutes that it would take to fill it out more than no knowing you're going to lose. Right. <laughs> so someone uh, asked
1: the question, why wouldn't you just fill out every favorite possible bracket scenario?
2: Oh, but there's like a trillion of them.
1: It's so many that it would take you 2.9 billion years to finish. Well, if you did one a second or something like that, if you put or it, one a minute,
2: yeah, if you put it this way, uh, I've heard, like, if you shuffle a standard deck of cards, the odds are really, really high that it's never been shuffled the exact same way, and that's fifty-two cards. So you're talking about sixty-eight teams. So to do that exactly right,
1: they so, said something like, "If," so if, the guys who thought of putting a billion dollars thought of that ahead of time, I guess. Yeah, I didn't
2: ahead. read the article, but I saw a headline today that said uh you're not or don't try to win who is it Warren Buffett's yes. billion dollar bracket because he's already won and i'm sure he's made cuz at the bottom of the the bracket there's like three things to sign up like are you planning on buying a house soon are you going to so uh so why didn't he just say a trillion i don't know and they are going to give away i think like 100,000 to the top 20
1: brackets oh, okay. so that's
2: more realistic i mean 20 people are going to win even if
1: so get in on that man
2: yeah I'll, I'll probably fill one. i filled one out for espn and i don't even know what the prize is there i just it was really easy it was like they have when you load their web it's like the main picture in the middle and it was the bracket and you could fill it out right from that picture as long as you were signed in so i
1: filled that out yeah so i uh i'm in something that they call the pool of doom okay which i won the very first year i was in it haven't been able to win since it's 30 bucks and it's a bunch of people and it's quote unquote winner take all. But the final like two or three people mathematically able to win always cut a deal. Okay. Cause nobody ever wanted to walk away with nothing in that. Right. Right. I actually didn't cut a deal and did anyone take all. And I don't think I was the reason who, who, why a deal wasn't struck. I think I would have done it. I know that there, I had Yukon was a national champion and I was the only one who had Yukon so if you kind of won the national championship going into the final four, I would win. There was two or three people who had Duke, and if Duke won, based on the other matchup, it would decide which Duke winner would. Oh, get okay. It. So it made it almost impossible to create a deal because there there was still five or six people who could win going into right the, the final four, but um. Yeah, so uh, it starts on Thursday and Friday. Well,
2: I don't know if I answered the question. It starts tonight. Right, right, right. Day day one is tonight. Round one. I don't know that I answered the question. I'm more likely to fill out two or three brackets than I am to watch probably any of it. I mean, maybe the finals I'll watch.
1: I tried to look up before the show other cool pools you can do besides brackets. Just a bracket, yeah. And I couldn't find a really good article about different ways to do it. I know that there's been uh, ways on how you rank, how confident you are about teams. Oh, really? Uh, So
2: your answers are weighted?
1: Yeah, but I couldn't explain that enough for you to start it. But there is one that I've been in that's really cool that I would really recommend you getting together. But you need 68 people, I guess, to do it. Or no, I guess you would only need the 64. So you put every team in a Hat and everyone just picks one team out.
0: Oh, and that's
1: your team, but it's not as simple as your team needs to win the national championship for you to win because it's against the spread. So let's say you pick a 16 seed, uh, whoever's playing Arizona, and the Arizona is the one in, in one of the brackets. So let's say you someone has a Don, you have Arizona, but
2: you're not doing any actual decision making in this. Nope, you just pick yeah, out a team.
1: I, I see where this is going. Okay, so you pick out a team, and uh, so Don picked out Arizona, and I picked out the 16 seed. Well, Vegas says that Arizona is a 32-point favorite. So for Don to move on, Arizona needs to either right. push, because they do give pushes to the higher-ranked team, okay. or cover the spread. If they don't cover, I move on with Arizona. Arizona.
2: Okay, yeah, I figured. That's kind of cool.
1: So that's a really fun way to do it and you don't have to know anything about basketball. All you need to know is how a point spread works. Sure, if I saw and one of those you for- need, And you need to make sure that there's an agreed upon time and spot where you're going to use the lines. Cuz the one year oh, I was in the it line there was shifted. a huge huge fight because the line went from like 4 to 8 in 4 hours and it fell in the middle there somewhere. Wow, and there's a huge fight over who should go on. Uh, so you have to say, right. "I'm going to use."
2: When do you think is the right time to do it?
1: You probably have to. say. What about like, right at tip off? Say noon. The problem is all the games don't tip off at the same time, so you're the runner would the, the person who runs it would have to be really diligent all day.
2: But what does ESPN? I mean, we're getting way into this now. But what does ESPN's site say? Like, if you click on the recap, won't it just show what the line was? At maybe. I mean that'd probably be the easiest but way, but I think
1: the way it's been done in the pool that I've been in this ever since is at noon. The at noon Eastern Time, he takes the lines from USA and that's and that's the lines for the day, right? And everyone seemed fine with that. But, sure. Yeah, March Madness, and we're going to talk a lot more about it with uh, Luke Wynn from Sports Illustrated. All right, my second thing this week
2: uh, in one of the Don Lake's two sports. The NFL is likely to expand to 14 playoff teams by 2015. So not this season coming up, but the next season. Inevitable. Um. Yeah, it's inevitable. And as a guy who is a fan of the team that has the longest playoff drought in the league right now, I don't know that I like it. I don't want my team to get in just because they are just taking more people. I think it hurts the two teams that really deserve it. Uh, because now there will only be one by team, which I guess is nice for that bye team. It maybe gives them a bigger advantage for winning the entire conference. But, yeah, the one cool thing about the NFL, and it kind of baseball hangs its hat on this a little bit, is like only the best of the best teams make it. Only 12 out of uh, 32 teams made it. And now it's going to be 14. So now you're getting to pretty close to half the league making it, like in the NHL. And, uh yeah, I don't know. I mean, don't we have bad enough teams making it in
1: already? Oh, absolutely. But unfortunately, like we're not saying anything revolutionary here. Right, this, it's all about money. This league is run by TV money, right? And TV, it's two extra games does incredible ratings for NFL playoff games because sure. they come at a perfect time of the year for sitting around and watching football on Saturdays and Sundays.
2: It's two extra games to gamble on. Yep, which they try to distance themselves from, but that's kind of like. In the public. They must love that it. It's so easily gambled on. Yep.
1: So, so yeah, yep. I'm not a big fan of it, but it's inevitable. I am a bigger fan of this if this was a compromise over switching to an 18-game season. Like, if they said, listen, we need to get a little bit more TV revenue here, and we're either going to do it by expanding the playoffs or expanding to an 18-game season, I think I would have picked this.
2: Yeah, as a fan, I think my problem, and I'm not a season ticket holder, but if I were, my bigger problem would still be paying for two preseason games, and I think that goes away, at least one of them goes away, with the 18 game season. Uh, so it's it's different problems. I I don't know that I need an 18 game season, but I don't need a four week preseason. I know that
1: for sure. So All right. Well, hopefully, there's not a lot of TV money going around for preseason games. Yeah, as I, far would, as I, I wouldn't know. think so. so. That's more about uh the the owners forcing season ticket holders. Right, you know. So uh my number two things also NFL related. Uh Colt's owner Jim Ursay, who's one of the most outspoken owners out there, certainly one of the most active in social media. I remember the day that the Trent Richardson trade hit, he was all over uh social media saying uh uh something big is coming down the pipe here. And uh I was going – Mr. Ursay was arrested this week, uh, drunk, carrying some controlled substances, and has checked into a highly respected healthcare facility to undergo treatment. The strange thing is the drugs he was caught with are really strange. Uh, One is Ambien, which is a sleeping pill, which I don't know why you would carry that around uh, with you, uh, or why – uh, an owner of an NFL team would need to illegally obtain Ambien. I mean, it's not – I don't think it's illegal to have a bottle of prescribed Ambien with you in the car. No, I wouldn't think so. So I don't know why it's a big deal that – like why he wouldn't just get a prescription. It seems That seems like an easy prescription to get. Why he'd have a legal Ambien is beyond me. Another one was Darvacet, which as far as I know, that's a painkiller that's been off the market for a few years now.
2: Yeah, I got Darvacets when my appendix
1: was taken out. They're, yeah.
2: they're nothing special as far as like you wouldn't want to abuse them.
1: Darvacets are the pain pill that when you get them, you go, oh, darn. <laughs> I was hoping for a little bit more exciting experience than that. And then the other one was Xanax, which is a uh, bio or uh, it's a uh, like a anxiety pill. So, right. I don't know what kind of milkshake uh, Mr. Ursay's on. I don't know Were why. They, he
2: was in possession of him. Were they suggesting he was on the pills, too?
1: Because he was drunk, right? That was the... Yeah, I mean, he, he was charged uh, with four felony counts of possession of controlled substances. So, he must not... After his... being arrested on suspicion of intoxicated driving. Oh, okay. So, he's probably arrested on suspicion and of the DUI, and then they get him to the 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 house and they uh, find the uh, four illegal drugs or whatever. Although only three are listed here. So yeah, very strange, very strange story. Uh, but uh, hopefully you get well in your highly respected healthcare facility. Mr. <laughs> my third thing this week, the NHL, my
2: other sport is considering a change to the draft lottery. And I guess this is more of a chance to ask a question that I've heard locally a lot because the Sabres have tanked it, uh, a lot of people say in the wrong year because this is going to be the year before the really good draft, but they but don't it. worry; they'll suck again next right. year. Right? Yeah, I don't expect them to be any good. But uh, what do you think? Should I've heard suggestions that uh, there should be a tournament to determine the number one pick, which I think oh, would be pretty
1: cool. That'd be cool, but no, God,
2: no. Um, do you just give it to the last place team to get rid of the lottery in
1: general? Whoa, that's gonna. Do tanking? What you get, if you want to eliminate tanking? If that's your fear, you just do a real lottery,
2: right? And the suggestion that they're making now is: right now the Sabers have all but locked up the last place spot, so they
1: can't finish worse than the second second pick, pick right? Because so you get get, they get, rid, a, get they, rid of that provision and just say they have the highest chance to win first, but
2: they still have to get their name picked out. They of still their have to
1: get their name picked.
2: Well, well the, the suggestion is that I think the fir- the lowest team could drop as low as sixth, so it's something in between that. Uh, yeah, I don't know how I feel about it. I don't know how if I feel like you should be rewarded for being like a bad general manager, or I don't know that I would even say Tim Murray is a bad general manager for doing this because of the system in place. Uh, Mike Shope, who we've had on before, is a local guy. He's very analytical, very uh, kind of a more of a thought thoughtful guy. He doesn't he doesn't do things like. Like a lot of guys, just do things out of gut or because it's old school or whatever. He's the opposite of that. He thinks this should be the exact opposite. He thinks the team that wins the Stanley Cup should get the first overall pick and just reward teams for doing well instead of, which would make it really difficult for teams to get out of the basement. But I don't know. A team like Edmonton's had the first pick for what four years or first or second pick, and they're still in. La- Third last, something like that.
1: So let's just say the Penguins won the Cup the year that Tavares was the first overall pick. Shope thinks it's a good idea to now throw Tavares in the mix with Crosby. And yeah, Nathan. yeah. I
2: don't know. I mean, I think he just doesn't like the idea that failure is rewarded.
1: I don't know what his analytics, his smart guy analytics, are for that. But I'm gonna go out on limb and say I absolutely that would be hate a disaster.
2: Yeah, yeah I, I don't think I like that either. But I, I heard someone called in the show and suggested that. You give the first place team to miss the playoffs, so you're still trying to make it into the playoffs. And if you just miss by a game or whatever, you get the number one overall pick. The only thing there I wonder is if you think you're not good enough to win, like, and you got like one game left on the schedule, do you miss the playoffs that season?
1: Uh, well, the one thing I would say about that is probably not because it's literally a million dollars profit a home per game, game, yeah, for playoffs. So that's in the Kings huge. were eight, eight seed it? and won it, yeah. yeah so. I
2: guess you just got to get in and get out of the first round, they say. But yeah, I don't. I'm glad they're doing this a little bit, I guess, but I just wish it wasn't when my team decided to be bad. Yeah, can
1: we wait until 2016 then? I mean, Pittsburgh was terrible,
2: and they're now considered to be brilliant. Chicago was terrible, and all of a sudden they're brilliant. Boston, the same thing. They had one or two terrible years.
1: Yeah, so if we get Reinhardt and McDavid and Gergensen pans out and. Gregorenko comes around, right? Or Arnia yeah, then supergear and now Tim Murray will be geniuses, brilliant, right? Yep. And Ristelainen, and they got plenty of guys who've been drafted very highly to be very good in a few years. If yeah, so I guess like out. in
2: synopsis, I'm not a fan of rewarding failure either. I just don't know a better way to do it.
1: All right, my last thing uh, for the ninth straight season there is going to be a new national champion in hockey in the NCAA and I don't know for sure that that ends the Yale quota I think we'll still probably have it (laughs) I I, I don't think the fact that they didn't win it this year makes it any less cool that they won it last year uh it's next to impossible to repeat and uh for a lot of reasons that I've seen with the Saints and now I've seen again with Yale uh, it's just impossible. And I'd love for people to debate me on this, but I've seen it two times now. It's impossible to bring the intensity that your opponent brings every single night because they only, besides the conference opponent, have one chance to play the defending national champion. And you have to play every game you as think, the defending national champion.
2: You mean you watched a lot
1: of it? You watched I watched all of the them games. all. Did, yes.
2: You, you think Yale got that? because it didn't seem like for a champ they were respected.
1: They got everyone's best shot every night. Yeah. I thought the only place they weren't respected was really in the polls. But that was more early. I thought they stayed higher than they deserved in the polls later Probably based on their... based on last year. Oh, okay. Uh but look at as a team it wasn't it was a disappointing year to lose in the the quarterfinals of the ECAC playoffs because they were a a better team on paper than they were last year. But one thing that paper is never going to be able to show is what a guy like Andrew Miller means to a team.
2: Oh, right. Yeah.
1: And even though Andrew Miller was the only forward of real significance, they lost. You can't measure in any way what a huge loss that was and uh, injuries too. And, Every team has injuries, sure, but I don't know how many teams uh, on the last weekend before Christmas had to play without five of their top six scorers, hmm. and those are that's a home weekend that they would normally get four points. They got one. Right. Now They also had a game against Cornell where they got a bad review. I got a great picture of it. I tweeted it a few times. Puck's clearly in the net. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, the review comes back. And that's a huge game. I mean, things happen over the course of the season.
2: And those, had and they those had a few more points. Happened, they wouldn't have played the quarterfinals. They wouldn't.
1: They might not have played the quarterfinals against, against Quinnipiac. Right. Uh, they probably would have played Cornell. Maybe they would have got a bye, and they would have been hosting someone last weekend. Uh, also, like Pairwise, where they were the last team in last year, they're going to be like the second or third team out this year. Okay. So it wasn't. A, they didn't miss it by miles. Right, right. They just missed it by enough to miss
2: it. So – oh, we ran out of music there. Um, I know you got a point to get back to about that real quick, but do you think that's all it is, why teams don't repeat? It's just because teams get their best from them? Well, or? I think
1: it's that. I think that the hardest thing about winning the NCAA tournament is getting into it. Uh, It's not 68 teams like basketball. It's only 16, and it's even less than that because there's five or six auto bids.
2: But, I mean, even – College football, which only has two teams play for the national championship, that, that's been repeated more recently than that.
1: Oh, yeah, that's, that's been repeated, but that's a whole different dynamic when you look at finances and stuff. Right, there's right. There's much more parity, I think, in college hockey than there is in college football. Okay, yeah, I guess that's what more, most of what I was getting right. at, is just the level of parity. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of parity, and when there's no committee, really. There is a committee, ultimately, that has a few decisions to make, but the teams that are in it are based on the pairwise rankings. Basically, you take the auto bids out, and then you take the next however many you need to fill it based on pairwise. So, like, Boston College was eliminated from their playoffs this weekend. So they're not going to get the auto bid in their tournament. So if the team that does get the auto bid, let's say it's Notre Dame, the team who beat them, who right now is outside of it, okay, gets it, that's one less at-large spot available.
2: And BC can't get the at-large spot? Or oh, still... BC is going to get it. Oh,
1: okay, okay. But, but the, the hope for the bubble teams is that BC would just get the automatic bid. So that losing that no game matter is what. terrible. So right, that right. being knocked out is terrible for bubble teams.
2: Was a, would You said Yale would be a bubble team, but they're not.
1: Uh, they, they weren't going to be a bubble team this year, but when it's all said and done, they're going to be like right one of the first them. four out. I see. So they didn't miss it by much. Uh, regardless, uh, you know what? I said this uh, on Facebook – uh, I guess more privately, but I'll say it personally. Winning championships are great, but they're only great because they're really hard to win. Uh, if they're easy to win and Yale just like won it every year Anthony was at Yale, right. I, don't, I don't know how special it would be next year if they're already working on three going on four. Right. Uh, maybe it would be special if it was just so unique. Like, sure. If that was the first time it happened. Right, right. Uh, but uh these things are really special because they're really hard to win uh so i still want to congratulate all those guys who i know went through a lot of injuries and people hate to blame injuries because all hockey teams get injuries but i guarantee you the teams that win every year are the healthiest and i can tell you that Yale yeah, was very 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 healthy when they won last year well that happens
2: in the nhl too people i've heard people complain about that a little bit where it it's not as much a skills competition as it is a an attrition competition. Right.
1: And Yale was very, very healthy. Come on CAA tournament last year. and NCAA yeah. playoff time last year. Uh they had gotten over their big stretch of injuries. Uh Jeff Malcolm, the goalie Goal who got like, to right. shut out. You know, he had just come back from injury and they were a very healthy team. Uh so congratulations to Yale on doing their best to repeat. There are still some very high moments. Their biggest rival is Harvard. They won 4-0-1 against Harvard this year, including beating them in a sold-out Madison Square Garden in the first-ever rivalry on ice game. Uh, And congratulations to a friend of the show, uh, a friend of the family, uh, Kenny Agostino, who as soon as the season ended signs this big NHL contract and is going to make his NHL debut on Friday. So congratulations, Kenny. Look forward to uh, watching you. And uh, I guess we're going to have to call Kenny here in the next couple of weeks and find out. Yeah, does he answer our call now? He does. <laughs> I'm confident he does. At least, uh, like I said, him, him and my brother are living together this summer. Yeah. In the home of the WWF.
2: Is he getting an invite?
1: Oh, well, they're all, they all have an invite. Oh, okay. Any of them that want to come can come. Okay. Because, I mean, there's only going to be a few available. So sure. if a few of them want to come, they can come. Uh, We would not really like that. Uh, formal. Formal about it for them. Right, right. The ones that can come can come. Gotcha. If it's all 25, we might be in trouble. But (laughs) I wouldn't anticipate that. No. But uh, congratulations to Kenny Agostino and Jesse Root on signing their contracts. And the other senior, Gus Young, is very beat up and probably not in the plans for the Colorado Avalanche at this point for this year. No. So he's probably just going to uh, sign over the summer. So he'll be just goofing around campus. All right. We are going to take a break and come back with Luke Wynn. (laughs) Our next guest was born and raised in the state of Wisconsin. He's a graduate of the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. Today he lives in Brooklyn, where he is a full-time college basketball writer for Sports Illustrated and Sports His power rankings column during the regular season is one of my favorite, And his blog during the NCAA tournament is my favorite. Looking forward to it this week. He's making his seventh appearance on the podcast today. Well, Warren Sportscasters, welcome to the very busy Luke Wynn. What's up, Luke? How you doing, Steven? Doing really good. Bummed you're not coming to Buffalo. I'm not. No yeah. I'm kidding. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> whoa. whoa. <laughs> oh I just decided to start off. I did not see mean. that one coming.
3: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think when people look at the bracket, they're like, Yeah. I want to be in Buffalo for the NCAA tournament. I'm gonna to be in St. Louis. Uh, where I think is, I think the games might be a little better. That was that was what I meant. It's just that I think that you could get a a Sunday doubleheader in St. Louis of Wichita State and Kentu- Wichita State against Kentucky and Kansas against New Mexico. Which I don't know. It's hard to top that that Sunday. So I'm well, I think
1: there. I think that's the bracket you'd want to be covering if you're covering any of the brackets. I mean, you'd want to be somewhere within that massive. Insanity, I think. You know, so. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. I'm, I'm happy. To, I, I followed Wichita for the, for Arch Madness in St. Louis too, and I'm kind of, kind of got sold on them. Um, so I, I believe. I actually I believe in Wichita. And I think they're. I think it's worth it to follow history if you get a chance to. Uh, you know, and 34-0. I think that they have. They have enough. They're good enough to make it to the final four and at least be in the mix for the title. So I think it's it's worth it to follow Wichita until it
1: ends. Now I've heard. I saw a tweet yesterday. I don't remember who sent it out, but they said the 2003 bracket was the worst one they've ever seen. This would be next. Wh- why? Wh- why would someone say that? And would you back that opinion to any degree? Or is that just, you know, the stuff that happens on Twitter?
3: I don't, Well, I think it's it's normal for Twitter to outrage rather than praise. Um and I don't know. I couldn't tell you context in terms of historically what are the worst brackets. But I know that the Midwest region this year was the way they did it was disappointing to me. I know that they had a ration. They had a rationale for it, which location, is that, right? you know the committee is now not just putting the number one seeds in their geographically appropriate region. They're also considering you know ways to put you know, your twos, threes, fours in their right in their region and it's just so happened that and it happens a lot, that the Midwest has a lot of really good teams every year. And so I just don't think that geography and the hope that you might put a few more fans, you know, in arenas uh should trump balancing the bracket. It just doesn't make sense to me. So I, I was I was upset. I mean I think that I, I don't think they did a great job with this bracket. Um, particularly, just and very specifically looking at the Midwest region, um, you know they underseeded Louisville, and and to put Wichita and Louisville as a you know a potential Sweet Sixteen matchup—that's just
1: it, it's a cool game, but it shouldn't be happening in the Sweet Sixteen. It's just that's
3: not right. I don't think.
1: Yeah, I've seen a lot of uh, kind of blowback at Wichita. You know, people saying that they'd rather be Duke. Just in their own bracket, they'd rather have the path that Duke could potentially have than Wichita. You know, and Wichita's the team who—that's the reward they get for for going thirty-four and zero or whatever it is. Yeah, I think I think that they didn't get. Uh, you know,
3: okay, their schedule isn't incredible. But I think they deserve. You know, I, I'm ha- I would, thought they deserved to be number one seed. I would say, not from the Duke angle, but I think the Wichita State is would have been better off. Um, being, you know, the two seed in the East than the number one in the Midwest. I really I really think that, you know, that, that would have been a much better path for them than where they're at now.
1: So they went through the tournament and made the Final Four last year. Is this a, hard, this, this is a significantly harder path? I didn't look back. I don't know if you maybe thought to, but what would, I mean, they weren't as high as seeded, obviously, so they must have been a difficult path last year. I guess what I'm saying is this is a battle-tested team, right, if anyone can do it.
3: Battle-tested team. You know, it's kind of funny. Like they got put in the they got put in the region last year with the number one seed that people were also debating, which was Gonzaga. Gonzaga played a better schedule last year, but they still ended up as the number one, and that's the team in Wichita ended up upsetting. So it's kind of you know, it's like Wichita upset that that sort of debated number one last time, and now they're in the. I feel like they're in the exact same position. You know, they're in the same position where. They're the number one, but they're not. They don't have a safe path at all, and you know people are going to. I think what will happen is, and what bothers me is that, you know, let's say Wichita loses its second game or its third game. I think fans might use that as an excuse to invalidate their season or their team. When I don't think that's the case. It's just that happened. They got a really hard bracket.
1: Now it seems like Virginia would be the fourth of the number ones. Do you have any problem with them being on the one line? Is there a two that you think got? No, I mean I really don't have a problem
3: with the way the way the number ones were assigned. I mean Virginia, you know, won the ACC and the ACC tournament. You know, totally deserving in my mind. Uh, I think if Michigan had won the Big Ten tournament. And the big ten regular season I probably would have put them there, but no, I think virginia was was right i mean the seeding decisions I really just think that Louisville is the one that Louisville was the one that bothered me. It's just that they should you know there were if you care about paying attention to other metrics um other than the r p i which I don't believe that the committee really does they say they do, but they don't i mean stuff I care about i mean louisville's second in efficiency in the country and you're seeding them and on the four line? It's just not... And, and clearly, you know, they're coming to the tournament with a ton of momentum. They've played great over the last month and a half. Um, to look at them and say that the four seats is just not doesn't seem right.
1: I read that uh, Vegas is on record kind of as saying that there isn't a team in their bracket that they wouldn't be favored against. Like, I th- Yeah, I
3: think that's true. I mean, yeah. I think that there's a pretty strong correlation between uh, I, I've noticed a very strong correlation between Vegas's opinion and that of you know what what's on sites like KenPom.com. I mean, there really isn't a huge gap between what the efficiency projections say. I think Vegas is, is actually looking at those sites and basing a lot of their lines off of them now, and it's become more accurate as a result. And you know, Louisville's ahead of every team in their region, so I don't think that's a crazy thing. I, I think that the Vegas guys are not you know lying when they say that.
1: Now, you mentioned you were excited about where you're headed because you're looking forward to Sunday. Everyone loves Thursday and Friday and just the idea of games going on all day long and, and having those long days. W- what are some games that jumped out to you when you first seen the brackets as, wow, those are great. I'll call them round two games. Fine, but you you know what, what yeah. they really yeah, are. Yeah, right? I hate right. that term. Yeah, but, I hate uh, you, you probably do too. Yeah, but, uh, to uh, we we right. all have to use right. it now. Otherwise, we're
3: just going to confuse people. So, right. um, that, you know, there's that eight nine game from Gonzaga and Oklahoma State should be great. Uh, that's that's a team. You know, Oklahoma State would have been. You got to think they're probably a five or six at, at you know at the least if they get to play the whole. You know, if they don't, if they. It's better, and they don't lose Michael Cobbins early, and I, I thought they were like on the way to being a top two or three seed, and then they have that kind of they have that stretch where they slumped and they lose Marcus Smart for a little while, but you know, so they're under-seeded as a nine, and you know, and Gonzaga is not. Terrible. They haven't had the kind of year they they normally do with wins either league, and that's why they dropped down. But I really I like that team that game because it's a good contrast of styles, um, and I, I think that uh, it's not. I, I think that in either of those teams could probably give Arizona a decent run in the second round. Uh, another game, another game I really like is uh, North Dakota State Oklahoma. Or um, I, I know that you're an Oklahoma fan. Yeah, yeah. Uh I think North North Dakota State. It's not a I picked I picked the 12 over 5 upset. Um not because I think Oklahoma is a bad team. I just North Dakota State is kind of a uh, I like I like those veteran, you know, veteran Cinderella's. They have senior stars. I, I've always kind of appreciated their coach Saul Phillips. I think he's a pretty good basketball mind. Um playing in kind of an out of the way spot in Spokane. Um it, it's just, it seems like it might have the upset formula. I like I like that game. And North Dakota State has Um, I don't know if many people watch them, but they they have one of the best offenses that I've seen a a, a mid-major have in a while. I mean, they're like a top 20 offense, you know, uh, despite playing the Summit League. And so uh, I think that it'll be a a good scoring game and could very well result in an upset.
1: Yeah, and it seems like the 5-12 is where the the upsets, statistically, they seem to always come from. But uh, I'm just really proud of Ron Kruger, where he's brought this team from. I mean, the cupboard was as bare as could be, and to think he's got them as a five-seed is pretty remarkable. I mean, oh, why yeah, do they win it the yeah. all? I mean, they were terrible in, the ter- in their game in the tournament last year. So you'd like to see him do a little bit better but this year. Yeah. But... <laughs> especially in the second half. They're really – I don't think they made a basket in the second half in the tournament last year. But regardless, I think he's done a great job there, a really good job. Because
3: yeah, it was a good it was a good hire. You know, it's, it's – a. I guess this is the season where you see coaches getting fired, but you need to appreciate uh, the good hires the teams have made. I think Oklahoma made a good hire with Ron Kruger. You know, it's like Virginia made this great hire in Tony Bennett. um you know, there's, it's it's nice to see some coaches coming through on their, their
1: promise, and he's one of them. Virginia, for me, seems like the team that came out of nowhere in the sense that it's like all year I felt like we were focusing on Duke and Syracuse in that conference. Like, Duke and Syracuse played that epic game the day before the Super Bowl, and Syracuse went on that long run of being undefeated, and then they kind of dropped off, and then all of a sudden this Virginia team came along and won the league and then won the tournament. Do they... Tell me about their season and kind of how they ended up being the fourth number one because they kind of snug up on me as more of a casual college basketball well, there's, fan. Well,
3: there's a reason that that people you know waited to believe in Virginia, and it's because they didn't do they didn't do the work in, in the outside the league. You know, they had opportunities. They went, they lost a home game to VCU. You know, in their their in-state rivalry. And I think that that early that was just that was their second game of the season, and. I think that, that even though it was a one-basket loss, great game, I think losing that one kind of made people put Virginia on the hierarchy, saying, okay, well, you know, they're not as good as the maybe the second-best A-10 team. And then they got another chance at home, again, against Wisconsin, and they didn't even crack 40 points. <laughs> and so it was a pretty ugly game. And then they lost a road game at Green Bay, and they lost that Duke. So, like, their first, if you look at it, their first four chances – to get a signature win, they didn't win. <laughs> and then it's after that game at Duke that they go on this streak that they really figured Because it took them a while to figure out their offense. So Virginia, you know, the one consistent thing with Tony Bennett teams is great defense. You know, they're going to play the pack line. They're going to you know limit scoring, force you into some bad two-point shots. Um, but it they didn't until, like, late January – they didn't really figure out their offense, uh, and it became this kind of. Ba- Last year's team was very focused on Joe Harris. This became a balanced team. They've got, you know, it's it's more like four scores this time. Malcolm Brogdon, Joe Harris, uh, Justin Anderson, Anthony Gill, and then you've got you know Mike Tobey, who plays fewer minutes but can score. Um, so four options in the offense rather than more like one, and it 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 changed them from being just this kind of dark horse team to the best team in the ACC.
1: Now I'm probably gonna win the billion dollars because you know with a perfect bracket. But just in case, I'm considering um, a team that's off the radar that can sneak into the the Final Four. Is there a team that you have in mind? You know, like Wichita is a great example. Last year, I don't think was on a lot of brackets as a Final Four team. Is there a team maybe not even that deep? But is there a team you have in mind that's just kind of out there, no one's talking about, thinking about that has four wins in them to get to a Final Four?
3: Yeah, I'm, you know, I, it's not that, it te- that it, this is a team that's off the radar because we've been talking about them a lot this season, but it's mostly just been for one player, and and that's Creighton. Is that I, f- I feel like they're regarded as a story because of Doug McDermott. But, um, you know, if you, you look at them, they have the number one offense in the country, and it's one of the best offenses of the whole last decade. They don't have, you know, they're not defending well enough to be your traditional Final Four team, but I guess you just have... They're playing in somewhat of a soft West region, and it's the kind of team that if they get hot enough, because they rely so much on three pointers. So if they get on the kind of shooting streak that you know we've seen a few times this season, they can string that together four games. There's no reason they can't go to the Final Four. Arizona is the pick that I made just because you have this consistency of defense. You know that they they they, they always guard. They're, you know they they consistently guard well. But Creighton sometimes, I mean. You can guard. You can guard inside the arc, and Creighton just keeps backing up. <laughs> and when Creighton's hot, they can just take shots from almost anywhere inside half court. So you run into one of those games; it's almost impossible to beat them. That's that's a team that you know I think that people figured was going to fade in the postseason, but I wouldn't give up on them entirely. Like I actually think that they have an outside shot to
1: make the final four. So you picked Arizona. Who are your other three? I picked. Uh,
3: I I, d- I picked Arizona. I picked Florida. I picked. Uh, Wichita State and I picked Michigan State, um, so a little chalky, three ones and a four but uh i I think that Wichita State almost seems like contrarian at this point since everyone is on the uh the Louisville, Louisville bandwagon, bandwagon yeah. and I was big into Louisville last year, and you know i, I still think they're great, but uh, sometimes you watch the team i don't know if they they don't have the exact same makeup. Of you know the cha- they not they don't have they still to me don't have the the championship feel that they did last year like something I don't know something's missing a little bit it might have just been that I trusted in Siva and I thought that they had a little more rim protection with Gory Dang um, and you know this team I think can fluctuate a little more and maybe they're great but they might be more liable to get upset
1: isn't there just some kind of a, a little bit of a comfort about picking Michigan State in this and when you fill out these brackets it just seems like Temizo always has this team ready to play at this time. Like, they just scream to me like they're a good tournament team. Like, I can't think of any. Like Kansas is a team that I can think of two or three games where they just humiliated themselves in the tournament or lost to a much lower seed. I can't think of that. Syracuse is another one who's had a few. Uh, I think they've lost as a two at least one time, maybe even twice. Michigan State just seems like a team that's always ready to play right now.
3: Yeah. They, yeah they are it, it well I think that the the thing that's comforting about them is that they have you know they had a tumultuous season, but they got everyone back now, and so people just watched the Big Ten tournament, and I think they saw, okay, that's the Michigan state team that we remember from the first few weeks of the season, and now they're back together, and you know, they look like the title team we were talking about early on, and you're right, I mean is so for coaches track records in the tournament he's really good i, I would re, I would remind you that like so, i mean he hasn't he's not perfect though i mean when uh right. if you look in two thousand and twelve uh you know that, would, that the two thousand and twelve team i thought was gr- you know was great that was the draymond Green team uh, that a lot of people thought was going to get to the final four and Louisville knocked them off Louisville killed them in the sweet sixteen i mean just held them the under fifty points it was just a beat you know it was a beat down and so it could happen it's not like he's infallible he sometimes one of his greatest greatest abilities is to win those short turnaround games in the tournament like uh... you know so the third round and the Elite Eight uh, right. <laughs> titles. It's, it's, like, right. He's really good at those, more so. I don't know what is. It, it's something about him, his able to, ability to game plan on short notice. But yeah, he's, he's hard to be in those situations.
1: Well, Luke Wynn uh, covers this tournament as good as anyone for Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. You can find him on Twitter at Luke Wynn. And the blog that he does. Uh, during the tournament I'm telling you is, is there a way you can go directly to that is there something you can type in that gets right to your blog or well you... this year
3: this year when we have it's kind of the arrangement has changed a little bit since I'm, I'm writing more for the magazine this year that uh, Brian Hamilton who was formerly of the Chicago Tribune who we hired this season is running our blog and I'm kind of contributing to it as well okay. so if you search SI.com one and one uh, that's that's our tar- blog but we running
1: into the tournament but we have a whole bunch of people contributing to it it's not just my show anymore but uh, it should be really good so so. And I guess then the challenge writing for the magazine is Sunday night is the deadline for that, right?
3: <laughs> it's Monday. Well, the magazine closes on Monday, so they hold it open Monday. for the title game. So it's a, uh, it's a. Uh, but yeah, we had to, I had to do the bracket. A lot of things had to be done Sunday night, so I actually had to do the magazine's bracket last night on on short short notice, <laughs> <laughs> or not on short notice, but with a short window to get it done. So that was kind of a, a stressful evening.
1: Well, listen, thank you so much for making some time during uh, what. It's a stressful time for you. We always appreciate this so much. Again, it's just that Luke Winnick on Twitter and check him out in the magazine. You loved. I I wanted to congratulate you on that cover last week too. By the way, because I could tell you were just so pumped about how it turned out. <laughs> I was. I mean, it was. It, it really.
3: It was more the cover, you know, just the, the what we did with the cover right. than the story that got that got the hype. I mean, I'm happy that people read it, but it, it was probably what we did that. But I love that it got the amount of attention that it did. It really took off. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it was exciting to see it. Not every SI cover kind of spreads like that. This one really got a lot of a lot of attention due to the bird throwback, so it seemed like the right call. Sweet Even man. if a few people called it blasphemous. that it, you, know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the story doesn't, yeah. doesn't say he's Larry Bird. It was just yeah, that we bird wanted to do a fun cal- retro
1: cover. Calm down, bird people. Yeah. Yeah. All right, buddy. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. Later on. Bye. All right, I want to thank Luke Wynn uh, for making his annual appearance on the podcast. That was something that uh, we missed out on last year with me being out uh, with my illness and us being on hiatus. We didn't get to do it. And actually, uh, while I was in the hospital, I'd occasionally get emails or tweets uh, from people saying, you know, what's going on, where are you guys, people who didn't know that I was sick, when are you coming back, that kind of thing. And by far the week that I got the most comments was this week. Where is Luke Wynn? Is he going to be on? And it's interesting with Luke because, you know, when we started uh, doing the spot with him, he was writing mostly for the magazine and concentrating on the, or writing mostly for the website and concentrating on the blogging. But now his role as a college basketball writer has increased so much since we've been doing this. And uh, because of that, his time is super limited, super limited. And I, I just can't, stress enough, like, how much we appreciate, given our stature and the whole landscape of things, of him making time available on our 150th show to do that interview and to give everyone some real perspective on the NCAA tournament. Uh, So we thank Luke for that. Uh, Book club stuff. In a second, we're going to close off a book that we've been doing about six weeks, and we did it a little bit longer, because this is a guy who's been really good to us. uh, A guy who wrote about on his website about when we came back from when I was sick and has featured us uh, several other times as well. His name is Ed Sherman uh, from Chicago. He writes for the Chicago Tribune. He wrote a book called Babe Ruth's Called Shot, The Myth and Mystery of Baseball's Greatest Home Run. And I got some emails over the last couple weeks from some readers uh, with some questions for Ed about that, and I'm going to mix those in. And also I read it on the way to uh, Yale a couple weeks ago. And I have some uh some questions as well. So we're gonna do the uh the typical close out, uh the book club uh book of the month for Babe Ruth's called Chat, The Myth and Mystery of Baseball's Greatest Home Run with Ed Sherman as soon as I'm done with this, uh in a second here. Uh so thanks to to Ed who's gonna be on in a minute. Uh as for Jeff Perlman, our now featured book club book of the month for March. Uh, it is officially a New York Times bestselling book. Uh, I know Sweetness was also a New York Times best-selling book. Colston has been enjoying Showtime as well. I'm not sure exactly uh, how many times now Jeff is a, a New York Times bestselling author. But I know that Showtime debuted at number 11 on the charts. Uh, again, it's Showtime, Magic, Cream, Riley, in the Los Angeles Lakers dynasty of the 1980s. Actually, Ms. Castor and I were driving to her parents' house the other day, and we flipped on ESPN Radio, and there was Jeff uh, talking about the book uh, to Jeremy Shap, I believe. Uh, and he's been everywhere. There was an excerpt in, uh, in Sports Illustrated, and uh, he's been on every show, Oberman. He's been all over. So hopefully by the time he gets to us, he still wants to talk about uh, the Lakers. And uh, this book, but uh, one thing that has been one thing I'm really excited and interested to ask him is last time with sweetness when he ran the excerpt he immediately got a huge a huge kickback about the book from people in Chicago people like Mike Wilbon, who I think to this day still haven't read the book or apologized uh, to the nasty and inaccurate things that he said uh, to Jeff, but It seems like the reaction to this book has been pretty universally positive. So it's going to be interesting to see as a writer how Jeff feels about not being under attacks, so to say, on this book tour, having to defend the book, but having more of an atmosphere of people being uh, excited about reading it. And again, uh, it's Jeff Prohman. Again, it's officially a New York Times bestseller showtime magic kareem riley and the los angeles lakers dynasty of the 1980s it's available everywhere books are sold and of course all digital formats as well all right so we're going to take that break and come back and finish out the babe ruth book with our friend ed sherman Our next guest is from Chicago, Illinois, and is a graduate of the University of Illinois. He has spent almost 30 years covering all things Chicago sports, including 27 years at the Chicago Tribune, where he is again a writer. He is also the author of our latest book club book of the last month and a half or so, Babe Ruth's called Shot, The Myth and Mystery of Baseball's Greatest Home Run. And he's nice enough to be making his, I believe this is his sixth or seventh appearance on the show today. <laughs> a warm broadcasters, welcome to Ed Sherman. How are you doing today, Mister Sherman?
0: Great, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I was just saying before we came on that I just kind of sat in the back of the back seat of the car on a trip to one uh, one of our trips to Yale this year, and read the book. And um, well, I guess we should start with this because this is always the the question that I'm. I know what it—the kind of commitment and the time it takes to write a book like this. Uh, so I always wonder how it came to be that you committed to the time and the commitment to write this specific yeah. book. What was it yeah, about it's, this project? It's, it's the First
0: time, it's kind of interesting. It's the First time I've written a book like this. I, I call it the kind of this a black hole. You know that you just kind of dive into because it it's just when you think you're kind of turn one corner, or you know, there's something else that comes around. It really kind of started for me. Um, I like I love sports history, and I, you know, and, and I really wanted to do a book like this, you know, something about sports history. And I suppose that uh, when I, you know, I start the book with my an interview with uh, Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens, who was at the game, and uh, I had the good fortune of being able to interview him, in his chambers in the Supreme Court in two thousand and eight, that, and that's what kind of got me starting to think that you know. This is kind of you know interesting, and you know I had this you know how many sitting Supreme Court justices still alive and you know and eight almost uh, seventy years later um, you know with the uh, memory of what happened on that day and uh, so it got me thinking about maybe there's a book here, and the more I kind of dug into it and searched out different things you know as far as the media stuff and what Ruth himself said and and how it came about and the bad blood between the two teams and videos being found. 50, 60 years later, um, you know, I thought, uh, well, maybe I can do something here. So that's kind of where it It really kind of started, though, with that visit to Justice Stevens' chambers.
1: Was there ever a point in either preparing for it or pitching it or even writing it where you thought, "Uh uh-oh, it just might have happened too long ago? There just might not be enough people around to help me get the information I need for this book?
0: Yeah, well, there weren't many people. You know, you're talking about something that happened 80 years ago. So anyone right. who was at the game, is either in their late 80s or early 90s, and so there's not too many people like that. Fortunately, I was able to find Justice Stevens. I found um, Lincoln Landis, who was, uh, Kennesaw still is Kennesaw Mountain Landis's uh, nephew, and he was at the game. And then, remarkably, I was able to talk Babe Ruth's daughter, is still alive, Julia. Stevens uh, is still alive. She's just turned 97 and I talked to her last year and, and while she wasn't at the game, you know, she had heard all the stories about the club shot heard uh, her father talk about the club chat, And then, you know, just even more so, how many people are still around who couldn't recall seeing Ruth hitting a home run. And she, you know, she was there intimate, you know, and still have an intimate relationship with, with Ruth. So I think that, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, that was a challenge. I think the bigger challenge was, you know, to try to write a book on, on essentially one pitch. I mean, it was one pitch, one swing. It wasn't like one game. Um, it didn't really involve, you know, a bunch of multiple characters. It was really the pitcher and, and the and the batter. And so that was the challenge to try to have enough to write a book. And, um, you know, I think I, hopefully I pulled it off just because there were so many different elements to, you know, that game. Great situation that happened in Game Three of the 1932 World
1: Series. Well, that was a, a Game Three is something I want to ask you about. But first, before I get to that, uh, the thought obviously of the Cubs being in the World Series is sort of foreign. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what was it? It kind of give us, you know, like the Cardinals and the Rangers played a World Series a couple years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And you know that that was just uh, Cardinals and the Rangers. Meeting in the World Series, there is no like there's nothing beyond that. It was just like, okay, right, this no, is the team that won the American League. this is the team that won the National League. Can you kind of tell us what the Cubs versus the Yankees in a World Series meant at this time?
0: Well, I mean you know the Cubs were a power team in fact, you know they you know much as we think of them as losers, back then, from 1929 to 38 they went to four World Series. They lost all four of them, but they went to four World Series. You know, they had a bunch of, you know, Hall of Famers on their team with Gabby Hartnett and, and Billy Herman and Kiki Kyler and, uh, and Heck Wilson. I mean, you know, they had great, great teams. They just couldn't win the World Series. So back then, this was really a, a matchup between two powerhouse teams that people had, um, you know, that people had anticipated and, um... Uh, This matchup and um, and actually going into this series the Cubs because of their pitching was you know They were considered the favorite which is pretty remarkable because they're Yankee pitchers Yankee batters You know when Ruth and Gehrig and everyone else has pounded them to smithereens But the Cubs were actually the favorite going into this World Series didn't play out that way though
1: One of the readers brought this up, and that was that they were really surprised you know sometimes when you get so focused on moments like this you kind of you think that this home run was like a walk off home run in Game Seven of the World right. Series, and then you find right. out well, really it was in Game Three of the World Series in a game that was you know four to four. It almost kind of I think he mentioned it's kind of like everyone looks back and thinks that the United States uh, beat won the gold medal when they beat Russia when really if they would have right. lost to Finland the next day they would have won nada. That
0: that's one of the more remarkable things. You know, I kind of I've said you know while talking about this book. Whether or not you you think he pointed or didn't point, and the people who didn't, you know, doesn't really change what happened. I mean, the people who think he didn't point, you know, just because you think he didn't point doesn't mean that you know this was an ordinary at bat. You know, this was you can make the argument regardless of what you think. This was the most unique and extraordinary bat in the history of baseball when you consider the circumstances and who was involved. I mean, it was in the middle of a World Series game. You know, keep in mind, the Yankees were up 2-0 in the World Series. Ruth hit a three-run homer in the first inning to give him a, you know, to make a statement right then and there. And then the Cubs finally show some life, and they come back in the bottom of the fourth, tie the game at 4-4, thanks in part to a misplay by Ruth in the outfield, whose legs were kind of gone couldn't move anymore. And now he comes up now, and and so all of a sudden the momentum is turned. He comes up in the fifth inning and the place imagine this in the middle of a try to imagine this taking place today in the fifth inning of a world series game place is going crazy they're everyone's on their feet they're throwing stuff at him the cubs players are out on the dugout taunting him. he's giving it back to him so that's and when you see the gestures you can say okay is he pointing or is he pointing the center field or is he pointing the cub players to get back in the dugout um, you know, that's where the gestures, I think, kind of come from. But regardless, he's giving it back to them. He's being challenged. And how did he respond to that challenge? I mean, he did. If he strikes out, maybe the series goes another way. Maybe the Cubs can continue to ride that momentum. But Ruth doesn't strike out. Ruth not only hits a home run, it's not, it, it, it's the longest home run at that point in Wrigley Field history. It went almost 500 feet. And the place was just stunned. And all the life was taken out of the Cubs. They, the Cubs—that was it. The series was over. He effect so. Even though it wasn't a ninth inning game walk-off home run, that homer effectively ended that World Series. Cubs just killed the Cubs, and uh... and they lost that game. And they kind of went out pretty. Um, they went out in Game Four. So just a remarkable set of circumstances. But yeah, it wasn't a. I mean, the the movie, the nineteen ninety-two movie, they make it look like it was a walk-off home run for right. Ruth, and it wasn't. In fact. <laughs> Lou Gehrig hit the next pitch for a home run, you know. So back-to-back home runs by Ruth and Gehrig. Um, But uh, it was just a great moment, though.
1: Another thing that one of the listeners pointed out or was curious about is, did you find that it was sort of hard to to get honest answers out of people in the sense that did you find it was Cubs fans saying, oh, no, he wasn't calling a shot, and then it was Yankees fans, or people on the Cubs side of the aisle were all, no, 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 and then people on the Yankees side Well, you
0: aisle. know, I mean, you can kind of split the Cubs side of the aisle as being Charlie Root's family and the Yankees side of the aisle as being Babe Ruth's family. And, you know, obviously I talked to, you know, I talked to both of them, or got information from both of them, let's put it that way. Charlie Root's family, that's the pitcher who gave up the called shot, won 201 games, winning this pitcher still in Cubs history. You know, I mean, he still holds the record for the most wins in Cub history. Great, you know, very, not, not uh, not a Hall of Fame pitcher, but an all star type pitcher. Highest paid, one of the highest paid players at that time, so he was an accomplished player. And, you know, and yet, despite all these great accomplishments, he was, you know, he was known for one thing as the pitcher who gave up the called shot. And his family uh, you know, denied that it happened. And, you know, and, and he, not that he was tormented by it, but it definitely bothered him. And especially when people asked him about it, I had a letter that when someone, you know, someone wrote to I got a hold of a letter that someone wrote to him and he responded in a hand, handwritten, he gave a handwritten reply at the bottom of the letter that if Ruth, if Ruth had pointed, I would have knocked him on his ass. That was what he, you know, he wrote out <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it, definitely, um, definitely bothered him and yet on the other side you know the Ruth Ruth's family of course Julia Stevens you know his daughter and his grandchildren yeah, of course he pointed I mean you know and that, that and that and so I asked him, well the interesting part about this is that Ruth kind of was like all over the place you know whether or not he you know in the story which seems, which seemed to suggest that he didn't point uh you know at first he said he would have been a you know, first it maybe at uh, first it seemed like he wasn't even sure what they were talking about. And then he kind of said, well, he gave an interviewer who would have said he would have been, you know, uh, basically was said it would been crazy to have pointed. He would have been an idiot. And then it seemed like after a while, you know, he kind of bought into the story and said, oh, yeah, sure. If, you know, if they want to believe I pointed, that they keep writing that I pointed, sure, I'll go with it. I pointed. Um, but, uh, you know, so I think that there, you know, so when you say that, Not necessarily split on sides. It's more of kind of what you let your imagination run with, and kind of the idea, as Bob Costa said, you know, there's really only one guy that you could imagine who could point and then hit a ball exactly to that spot. It would be Babe Ruth, you know, and so that's why it's, you know, that's why it's somewhat plausible, and why it became such, you know, such a great legend because it was his of the guy who did it, and uh, and really it's a defining moment of his career. He didn't hit that walk-off home run. You know, when you think of what's the one thing when you think of he hit 714 home runs and how um, many 15 more in postseason. What's the home run you remember the most? Steve, What what is it? No, it's a call for shot.
1: sure. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, he didn't have like that other – he didn't have a, the, a walk-off home run. He didn't have a Joe Carter home run. He didn't even have a home run – I can't guarantee to break his record. You know, that was, you know, or a catch like Willie Mays. It was this, he, so if anything, his career was kind of begging and demanding this kind of moment, this crescendo, and that's what happened with The Cloud Shot.
1: Now, there's a couple of, uh, quote-unquote, Zapruder-type films of this, and as far yeah. as I know, they weren't shot in HD. Uh, no. <laughs> so, but I, I wonder, you know, uh, in the years since they have existed, has there been any Anyone taking the time or the money or the effort to try to enhance these videos at all? Uh, Not that I know that of. You know, I
0: saw the one. Uh, there was a there was two people that I know of that they went. To the, you know, the newsreel people. They didn't get. You know, it seemed like they were on the roof. You know, it they, they seemed like they were almost in another county. You know, for their vantage point, they didn't have. You know, they didn't get the the called shots. You will really only see Ruth rounding the bases, and gesturing. There you know, there were two people who were at the game, two fans, um, with sixteen millimeter uh, cameras. They shot footage of the called shot. They weren't baseball fans, so they shot this footage and along with all their other home videos, stuck it in a trunk and it you know, and pretty much they you know, they would bring it out for, you know, family celebrations. Oh, here's grandpa doing this and here's Aunt Susie doing that, and here's Babe Ruth hitting a home run in the World Series. And these people didn't really know what they had until decades later. So someone said, hey, do you know what you have here? And so I looked at the one in, uh, uh, this Matt Candle shot this video. I looked, I looked at it with his great-grandson, Kirk, in Louisville, and uh, they really didn't even realize what they had until the mid-'70s. Um, and we analyzed the film, and again, it's hard to see. It's not like he it didn't keep the camera on for the entire bat. You know, maybe he was trying to save film or whatever, you don't know. Um, so it's not definitive, but it, it really does though give you the sense of Ruth in the context of a game because i I have seen very, very little footage of him really in the context of a game, you know watching a pitch, taking a pitch, um, swinging, you know uh, so I thought that was interesting, but it wasn't definitive, uh, but it was it did kind of provide a little bit more of a snapshot. a little little more of a defined view of what happened. I mean, for instance, Gabby Hartnett, here's one of the interesting things. Gabby Hartnett said that Ruth never pointed. Well, on the pitch that he supposedly, you know, did one of the big gestures, the pitch got away from Hartnett, trickled away behind him. So when Ruth was making his gestures, Hartnett's back is turned retrieving the ball. So he never saw anything like that. So, you know, again, so these little things that kind of, um, you know, just to poke holes into someone's story. Uh and uh it, it, it was illuminating and it was pretty amazing just to see him uh hit that pitch. Uh it was a low and outside pitch. He you know he practically golfed it out of the ballpark. And the guy was just an amazing athlete. I think we have this, this you know caricature view of him kinda of being this uh uh heavyweight, over you know, big party guy, overeating, fat, you know. And, and while he was, you know, like that in his career, you know, later in his career, he had amazing hand-eye coordination, amazing eyesight, amazing flexibility in his upper body, and uh, just an incredible swing. I mean, that, there's a reason why he was able to do all the things that he did. So far ahead of everyone else, it's not even funny.
1: One of the readers wanted to know that after all the research and writing the book, have you decided one way or another what you're <laughs> going to choose to believe? Well,
0: you know, I, it's kind of like, I, I will say that you kind of have to read the book, you know, to kind of see. I didn't, you know, I want to tip my hand. Yes, it's kinda yeah, like I, kn- asking, I
1: know the answer to that question because I read the book, but I wasn't going to leave it out because someone took the <laughs> <time
0: and just, laughs> Well, it's kind of it like inside. you're asking a film director. So right. tell us about the end of your movie. <laughs> right. you know? Well, you know, so I kind of want people to read the book to kind of see the conclusions. And I also, have, I also have a section, you know, where I, I quote, Experts, you know, historians, people who know the game from, you know, people from the Hall of Fame to John Thorne, the official historian from MLB, uh, Keith Oberman, Bob Costas, George Will, uh, Lee Monfill, who wrote the biography of, uh, of, of Babe Ruth. Uh, so all sorts of people. And so and it was interesting. I don't know if you, you noticed in that one, Steve, but that everyone seemed to kind of say something at least a little bit different. You know, they didn't kind of come at it the same way. Keith Operrman was definitely was thought it was uh, you know definitely uh, something that was <clears throat> that uh, that didn't happen, and he was pretty vehement that you know that, that he thought the Billy Goat Curse was more believable than you know the called shot. And you had a few of these other guys. who was you know kind of come to believe that you know that that something happened, and I, and, and, I, and I'm kind of without tipping my hand. I'm in the corner of it's not black and white. I'm in the corner that something happened, and I think you have to kind of determine for yourself whether or not you believe that he pointed and called his shot but i'll go back to this notion again that regardless this was an extraordinary at bat and an extraordinary moment in baseball history
1: yeah and it's one of the best actually one of my favorite parts of the book is just reading all the different opinions from yeah so many different guys that you watch every day buster only you know tom verducci guys like and that. they
0: all kind of took different like tom verducci kind of said you know what but you know, if it—I don't want to know if it didn't happen. I, don't tell me. I want to believe that it did happen. You know, and I think there was an element. There is an element of that. You know, don't, you know, don't go, you know, don't don't ruin a good story with the facts. I mean, it's a good story, and so he was. That's why I thought that that section turned out, you know, better than I even thought it would because everyone kind of came, had a different perspective. They didn't write the same thing or respond the same way. And so that's why, you know, you get some pretty good names in there from people in the industry. And, uh, you know, listen, I think um, you can look at it straight as a a history. It's a straight uh, objective observer, or you can have a little imagination. And I think it takes a little bit of both to kind of determine what happened in this thing.
1: It's always exciting sometimes when you watch a movie and, at the theater and you're getting ready to walk out and the credits are rolling and then there's some more there. And I thought, just when I thought the book was over, because, you know, you think, oh, appendix, eh, whatever. But there's some really great stuff in here that you put, including, like, some spots in pop culture where mm-hmm. this comes up and an actual play-by-play of the game, which I thought was really cool, and some really great stuff at the very end. So make sure you don't close the book Just uh, (laughs) at the very very end there, and plus the acknowledgments. I mean, you got to read the acknowledgments. But uh,
0: yeah, (laughs) is
1: there? (laughs) What uh, was it? Talk a little bit about finding these uh, these these references in pop culture. Was that was was
0: it? Well, I saw you know there was. It's I I kind of built off of of something I found on a Wikipedia page, and then I kind of built off of that. They kind of had compiled a few of these, and then I kind of knew a a few other ones like the. um, uh, Tootsie Roll had done a complete cartoon strip uh, of Ruth, and from 1948, with Ruth, you know, going through the call shots, kind of to preview the that horrible move, William Bendix, you know, biopic that came out. Um, you know, I remembered seeing this the the Chevy commercial. Chevy just recently did a commercial where these kids, little leaguers, are playing, you know, acting out famous home runs, and you had one guy doing. Uh, one kid doing Carlton Fisk waving at fair, another one doing Kirk Gibson, you know, trying to get around the, you know, have around the bases. And the third kid, uh, a heavy set kid, points, you know, to center field. And, uh, you know, again, it just show, kind of shows how it lived on in pop culture. You know, movie major league, you know, when, was it Taylor? What Jake I can't Taylor. remember the yep. catcher's name. Jake Taylor. Huh? Jake Taylor. Jake Taylor. Yeah. Jake Taylor. You know, in the ninth inning, he comes up and he points to center field. You know, and gets knocked and then, out. You know, and so again, it kind of, you know, in that climactic moment. Now he didn't. You know, and then he does something completely different. But again, it kind of shows how this thing kind of continues to live on in 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 pop culture and uh, and th- th- it probably always will because of who he was and what he represented and how he, you know, I mean, it's just uh, there's no other supporting figure that continues to endure so long after that he played this, you know, his last game. And it, it always will just because it's Babe Ruth.
1: Sports here finishing up with Ed Sherman, whose uh, book, Babe Ruth's called shot the myth and mystery of baseball's greatest home run. Uh, when we first started talking about the book, I believe it was just available at Amazon. And as we've been saying the last couple of weeks, it's pretty much available everywhere now. Um, I don't know anything. Any last things on the book that you'd want to tell someone?
0: Well, I just you know I, I'm fence? hoping people will you know enjoy the book and and, and kind of look at you know again. I, you know, I think that uh, it's really a, a an incredible moment in history, and it was really his defining moment. I think that that's what kind of makes it special that this was guys the greatest baseball player of all time, and I think you know despite what ESPN said, the greatest athlete of the 20th century, definitely the most impactful athlete of the 20th century is when you consider that he saved the whole game of baseball and, uh, you know, and what he did. Um, and so uh, it's just a great moment. It was a lot of fun. You know, it's, I love sports history. If you go to the bookstores and you like you do, and uh, if I read, you know, so many of them are about sports history and it's about telling a good story. And bringing something from the distant past and making it relevant to today, and uh, you know, bringing it alive again. And I hope I was able to do that with this book. That's at least what I tried to do.
1: When you finished it, did you say, "All right, I don't think I ever want to do that again," or do you think you got? Another That's what everyone Indian?
0: says. And I'm still in the process. You know, again, the book is out, and you know, I'm working now to promote it, and you know, try to get on shows like you, and contact other people that I know or don't know. And so, again, it's just kind of this black hole. But I have to say, when that book came, you know, you do get a little shiver down your spine when you kind of see your name on the on a book, and it doesn't, you know, that was pretty much, that was the payoff, you know, of whether or not I, you know, how much money I make or whatever, the payoff of, uh, was just kind of seeing the finished product, and you see it kind of in different stages, and you even see it, you know, the galleys or whatever, but when you see, you were able to hold the actual book in your hand, or you go to a bookstore and you see it kind of, you know, at least sitting up on the where people can find it. It's pretty exciting. So, you know, I'm hoping if the right opportunity comes along, I'll do another one. Um, and But right now I'm going to concentrate and hopefully getting people to buy this book.
1: Uh, one last thing and I'll let you go just kind of off topic a little bit uh, what are you expecting from from CBS this year as far as broadcasting the NCAA tournament anything different it's going to be pretty much status quo
0: uh, well it's, it's not going to be status quo because they got a new guy you know new, new analyst joining Jim Nance uh, Greg An- Clark Kellogg has gone into the studio and Greg Anthony is going to be working with Jim Nance, and it's going to be really interesting. I mean, you know, they've worked two games together, you know, and they haven't worked a game together since December because of Nance's schedule, and uh, so now you're going to throw these guys together for the biggest uh, games of uh, of the turn- uh, of the NCAA season, and uh, so I think it's going to be uh, kind of interesting to see how those guys come together. You know, the one thing that Nance is a pro and he knows how to work with, um, you know, he can work with anyone, but there's still uh, – the chemistry that gets developed over time, you know, needs to develop. And so it'll be interesting to see how good, how quickly those guys come together. Uh, so that's the big thing to watch.
1: Kind of another example of how hard it is to be the guy that replaces the guy.
0: Yeah, you know, and for whatever reason, I like, you know, I thought Clark Kellogg was fine. I'm not sure exactly why they felt like they needed to do something else other than, you know, that, you know, that uh, I don't think there was a big cry, oh, we got to, you know, that that Clark Kellogg's not doing the job. I think that they kind of felt like they wanted, you just never know. I think it's such a subjective industry that sometimes people just want to try something new. They want to see what something else looks like. And I think that this kind of falls under the heading of that, that they wanted to try something new here and see how it works out, you know. And so it's, you know, I mean, it's not like they completely – shuttered Kellogg to the hinterlands but his role is not as going to be as you know he's going to still be prominent in the studio but it's not going to be a showcase as much as if he's doing the game so now it's Greg Anthony's turn to see if, what he can do
1: alright Babe Ruth called shot the myth and mystery of baseball's greatest home run by our friend Ed Sherman thanks a lot for taking some time and talking to us about it mm-hmm. All right, I want to thank our guests, Luke Wynn and Ed Sherman, for being on the podcast today. Really appreciate that. Uh, make sure you check out Ed's book, Bray Bruce Called Shot, The Myth and Mystery of Baseball's Greatest Home Run. Really appreciate his time talking about that. Thanks again to everyone who's listened to Steve and Don for 150 <laughs> episodes of the Sportscasters. You can find all 150 of them on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also email us at sportscasters at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters, where I mostly tweet from. Or if you want to find Don, you can find him at Don Lake sports. Um I think that's all the business for me. Uh, so that's up to you.
2: All right. One last thing for me this week, and I think I've actually talked about this exact same thing, but uh, Jim Kelly, local hero, I guess you could call him, is – having a reoccurrence of cancer and from that i found an article that i didn't see somehow but it came out earlier this month march 4th uh 2014 on espn written by rick riley about it's called the patience of jim it's a really nice article about how really uh it'd be tough to find anybody that's had more obstacles thrown in their way and how graceful uh jim kelly handles it all and uh I guess my last thing is just an excuse to tell people about that article and to say, I hope he gets better. Uh, Really, this guy has had it rough his entire career, his uh, losing the Super Bowl. I mean, the article lays it out better than I can, but just he he says, next time you feel like you're at the wrong end of God's whack-a-mole, think of Jim Kelly and be glad you're not him. Uh, I think he says it all like, meaning with kindness, but uh, it's a cool article and Jim's having a reoccurrence of cancer after he, they found cancer like in his jaw, which is, was reconstructed and all, all this fun stuff. And uh, hopefully he gets better. I mean, he seems to persevere through all these hard times, but man, it's gotta be scary. Cancer sucks. Yeah, for sure.
1: All right. uh, One last thing for today's show, something really cool. Uh, We talked about it a little bit on last week's show about 1994 and all of the great albums that came out. And I I think I mentioned it, but uh, since then I actually got to watch it. Uh, Soundgarden, uh, as part of some kind of iTunes music festival, uh, played the Super Unknown album which was released in 1994 from beginning to end. And I got to tell you that it was one of the coolest things uh, ever. Uh, it was so awesome. Uh, right at the beginning, uh, Chris Cornell mentioned that there's a lot of different tunings in the album because they didn't worry about that because they were making an album. But when you're playing it okay. from front to back, it meant a lot of uh, guitar changes. So they're switching guitars almost every song, so that had a little less of a, a flow uh, as a concert might sometimes. Very few songs just like led into the next one. But, man, did they play it well, and some of the songs, like Limo Rack, which is one that they've played very rarely since the album's release released one, two, maybe three times, they absolutely killed. And uh, everyone that was watching in the Garden fan community was really excited about it, and that was the last show that Matt Cameron's going to play with them this year, although they did announce this week that they were going to tour with Nine Inch Nails. So if you're into, I guess, 90s rock, that would probably be a nice show to see. But uh, bravo to Soundgarden for really killing it. Super Unknown, one of the greatest uh, rock albums of all time. And it was really fun to watch it uh, from front to back.